if you're haven't been here and you're confused um, by the talk of maps, the reason is because I've been just we've been doing maps as we go through this section of judges because I personally find it more interesting if you can tell what's going on. And so I've got this up here. We drew this uh, shape of Israel. There's the Jordan River, and then the white lines are like the mountains. And I made it a little bit more accurate now. I kind of like, you can see that if you have your own version of it. Um, just drew it in, and I'll pull this out so you can see it right there. Um, but last week, we spent time in this little valley over here, the Valley of Armageddon, or the Valley of Megiddo, or it has a bunch of different names in scripture. And we ended with a battle of Deborah and Barak, if you recall from Judges. And God said, I want you to go and I want you to fight these guys. And I'm going to put you in a position that gives them the, the biggest possible advantage. They had all of these chariots and their chariots were over here towards the sea. And he said, I want you to go over here to Mount Tabor. And I want you to, uh, it, it's going to look like you're going after their capital, but I just want you to kind of draw their army out. And so the enemy had a really easy path to just, like they didn't really have to go over anything big. They can just take their chariots and happily go through the land real easy over to the battle. It strategically looks like one of the worst possible places for the children of Israel to make any kind of stand because they're inviting the chariots over. Come on. And then the Lord gives them the victory. And God gets the credit for it because remember the chariots of iron is exactly what they defeated here at Mount Tabor, which was what Judah feared at the very beginning of the book of Judges when they began to refuse to obey the Lord completely. We are going to go all the way from Mount Tabor <clears throat> to Mount, <laughs> Mount Mora today. <laughs> So we're still in the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, but this mountain is going to be our like central point. It's a really long journey, isn't it? I don't like the Valley of Armageddon, like the final battle and all this other kind of stuff is not the first battle that's been fought in this valley. It's actually seen a bunch of them. <clears throat> but before that, when we get to this story, we need to go through chapter five. And if we, like I talked about in the book of Judges, a lot of this is, I feel like there's extra detail in here for the junior high boy, like the, just the blood and guts and the death and the people getting staked through the head. And it makes the point of like that the stake goes all the way through the guy's head into the ground and thus was, you know, uh, Sisera defeated. <clears throat> Except that they stuck this song in there. And if I was a junior high boy, I wouldn't really care about songs. <laughs> I'm being honest. But in chapter five, the reason that they do this whole song is because it's a really easy way to communicate and to wrap everything up into something that's easy to memorize and to communicate to their children about the works that God has done. And uh, I mean, that's true for us as kids. We make up little songs. Everybody can still sing our ABCs, right? I still do that in my head. <laughs> I'm not trying to think of the alphabet. The alphabet is just, you just kind of have to you just have to memorize it. It doesn't make any sense if you think about it. This is a weird point to make. Have you thought about that? The alphabet, like the order doesn't make any sense. Somebody just decided it. We all had to memorize the song. But songs are easy to memorize. And so this song is going to act as a recap 
It's going to act as a praise to God. It's going to act as a condemnation, which is really interesting. You'll see. And it's going to come into play in the story of Gideon. And so we're just going to go through it somewhat briefly to get to Gideon. But I think there's good stuff to take from it as well. Judges chapter five. You know there? All right. I will, by the way, I will be giving you something to add to your map. So if you brought your map tonight, I'm going to give you, it's like one little thing, but it's a good thing. (laughs) Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. It is a great thing when leaders are willing to do the difficult work and even the brave work and the scary work of genuinely leading. It can be hard to grab a bunch of people and say, we're going to go attack a force that is way greater than us. But it is absolutely necessary. And we suffer when our families have no leadership. We suffer if our church has no leadership. We suffer if we will not lead ourselves personally beyond what we feel. And we suffer when we as a group of people or as a nation aren't led by leaders who would do the difficult thing. When leaders lead in Israel, bless the word, and coupled with that, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the word. When we all follow the Lord, we also follow those who God sets in charge. And so both of these things make a healthy group, make a healthy family, make a healthy church, both the lead and the follow together. And when people do both, bless the Lord. We're going to see that in the next chapter with Gideon. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, I even I will sing to the Lord. I'm not going to sing this. They said this, but I'm not going to sing it. You don't want that. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. And then they're going to recall the story here. So if you would... Let's just read through it together. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai, before the Lord God of Israel. <clears throat> he didn't talk about it in the story. Uh, the, the writer of Judges didn't mention it. But it seems like the way that the Lord defeated the chariots of iron at Mount Tabor was that there was a great torrential rain and in the muck and in the mud, it and like made the chariots unable to like do their thing. And I love that. Sometimes we feel like we're stepping out with the Lord against something that's big and, and we meet the enemy in his own territory, but we do it because God has said to do it. And so often the Lord flips it around and makes the enemy's own territory and uses it against him to do the work of God. We just have to be willing to go. That's going to be the theme of Gideon. I'm going to, I keep saying that, but you're, you're going to see this chapter goes right to the next one. There's a theme. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anathath, in the days of Jael, the highways were all deserted, and the travelers had to walk along the byways instead of the main roads. Village life ceased, it ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel, they chose new gods, then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. The enemies of Israel had disarmed them. 
the enemy often tries to disarm us, right? And uh, there's a list of tools for sin fighting. If you want this, I'll sh- I'll shoot you the the list of this later. But um, Satan wants us disarmed, but we have tools that we must pick up and use in walking with the Lord. <clears throat> I'll list them. I have eight. One, and I totally stole this probably from my dad. I think at some point, but yeah, everybody thinks that's how it works. Your relationship with the Lord is a tool in sin fighting, the Holy Spirit and prayer. If those are missing, it is harder for you to fight. Taking every thought captive, the practice of watching and taking your own mind before the Lord to know the truth and to counsel yourself with it, fighting against replacing evil and wrong thought with godly and true thought, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, true, praiseworthy, whatever the rest of that verse is, think upon such thing. That's a tool for sin fighting, taking every thought captive and obeying the word. Third, related, that we wield scripture, fight with it, speak it to yourself, decide to believe it and know it. Four would be responding correctly in the moment as exemplified by the uh, pattern of Joseph. In that when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he rege- he refused the sin. He repeatedly refused the sin. He recognized that it was a sin against God above all. And then he ran, right? That one I definitely stole from dad. 100% positive on that one. Thank you. <clears throat> and I have all these if you want them. I know I'm going fast. The fifth tool that we have is the church. Others, accountability, Galatians 6.1, that heart that we all have of both restoring one another and being willing to be restored by one another. Our sixth tool is humility. 1 Corinthians 10.12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Constant dependence, not independence on the Lord. Seventh, confession and repentance when we do sin. Eight, the armor of God, right? And everything in the midst of that, which I kind of include under one, but makes sense. These tools, the enemy tries to disarm us from. We should make sure that we hold them tightly and wield them. Not a shield or spear was seen, verse eight, Judges five, or are we in five? Just got lost. Yes, (laughs) ha ha. Among 40,000 in Israel, my heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Leadership is a willingness to sacrifice. Speak, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, who walk along the road, far from the noise of archers, among watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord. The righteous acts for his villagers in Israel then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. The song says, hey, tell people about this. And I like that it says, even when you're far away, at watering holes. So it's like, make this your water cooler talk, Israel. When you're at work and you're at the water cooler, talk about this. Share this story of God's goodness. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, 
were those whose roots were in Amalek, after you, Benjamin, with your peoples. And so it's talking about the different people who are involved. And like the oral tradition, you would, uh, when you told a story, it was important to get the details. And so this is them going through the different people who were involved in this fight. Benjamin, with your peoples, from Mahir, rulers came down, from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As Issachar, so was Barak sent into the valley under his command. I think I've pronounced the Barak, Barak guy's name differently every single time. <clears throat> Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Pretty cool, isn't it? Nice to have your, your exploits remembered in song. And we, we tell the stories of the great people. I could think of the stories about Hudson Taylor and think about, you know, all the different people and, that God has used. And it's a good thing to remember, like, the work of God and people's willingness to jump in and be a part of what he's done. But also we remember verse 16. Why did you sit among the sheep to hear the pipings for the flock? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed in their place beyond the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. And so he calls out several people and says, you didn't help. Dan, you stayed where you were. Asher, you stayed where you were. Why didn't you come and help fight? Right? We remember also like, the history of the church, the people who have done great evil and the people who refused to stand in the day that they should have stood. And it's a challenge, I think, and a reminder to all of us, a reminder to all of us that um, like, the Lord judges, right? The kings came and fought. The kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. That's this little river right here, <clears throat> just south of Mount Tabor. That's why right here is where we feel like the Lord probably used like a flood or a rain to defeat the, the chariots themselves. <laughs> the ancient torrent, that torrent of Kishon, Oh, my soul, march in on, or on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. We don't know exactly where, who Miraz is, but Jesus directly curses them for not coming to the aid of Barak and Deborah and his army. There's going to be another thing that we'll see again with Gideon and his army. <clears throat> Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water, and they tell the story in a poetic way. She gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera, that was the general of the enemy army. She pierced his head, split, and struck through his temple. And then they're going to emphasize this, the fact that he died to her. At her feet, he sank, he fell. He lay still. At her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Almost this graphic story of more detail than we got previously of where she goes for the strike and he like doesn't get killed on the very first strike and he like tries to stand up and then she hits him again and then he goes down. 
I find it interesting in scripture how unapologetic the Lord is about the uh, goodness of judgment in its correct time and its correct way. God is not one who is ever ashamed of the judgment that he enacts, right? Obviously, we today are not acting very often as the judges of the Lord as Israel did. He does not often call us to that. Brandon Grayson used to joke about how he kind of wished, kind of throwing him under the bus here a little bit, but in youth group, he would joke about how like, you know, sometimes you just feel like people need to be judged. And it's like, Lord, I'll do it. (laughs) I'll be a sniper for Jesus. I always liked that idea in the name of the Lord. (laughs) But I think that that concept isn't actually entirely invalid. Obviously, we follow the Lord, right? But it's true that God judges. God sees evil and he deals with it in his time and in his way. But make no mistake, he will. And it's interesting that in the judgment of the Lord, there is this obvious sorrow, like the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But yet there is a pleasure and a joy in justice being done that ought to be done, right? And so I think, again, in the land and the culture in which we live, we cannot be controlled by our concern about how something comes across to every person, right? We are concerned with our obedience to the Lord, and uh, we can be as unashamed as they were about this judgment. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out among the la- through the lattice, Why does Sisera's chariot so long and is it so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies comforted her, and she answered herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoil? To every man a womb, literally is what this word is, to every man a womb or two. For Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dried embroidery for the neck of the looter. Thus let all of your enemies perish, O Lord. And so Sisera and his army had oppressed Israel. They had stolen the women. They had stolen the garments. And God had visited this judgment on their own head. But let those who love the Lord be like the sun when it comes out in its full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. And then they follow the Lord happily ever after. (laughs) They taught their children and their children learned and they submitted to the voice of the Lord. They did not go after the Baals. I wish I could read that. As we said last week, sometimes in prosperity are our greatest dangers. May the Lord keep us. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of, the, of Midian prevailed against Israel. So we got to update our map. All right. This one actually isn't going to fit. But if you have your map, do, do, here, let me get this so you can see it, of Israel. And uh, you got, obviously, we've, we've gone through this a few times. Forgive me if you haven't been here uh, it would be too much time for me to go through all the little details of this, but we have our layout of Israel and we have our f- uh, five big players that we'll see all the time. Really, the main four down here, you have the Philistines and then you have the Amalekites to the south, Moab to the east of the Dead Sea and Ammon 
in modern day Amman. One letter different, actually. <clears throat> and then up to the north, the Hivites, the Sidonians. I don't actually see them in the story that much. So these are the big guys. None of these are who the Lord uses, though also them, but it's way down here, the land of Midian. Just to the east of this kind of spur of the Red Sea, I forget what this one's called. This one's the Gulf of Suez. What's this one over here? Let me remember off the top of my head. The right one? It's one of them. This whole thing is the Red Sea. This left one is the Suez. And this right one is the something other. Ah, it is. Aquaba. Thank you. The Gulf of Aquaba. Here on the eastern side of this, you have the land of Midian. And it's kind of far away. So what they do is they come up and they make a grouping with the people of the east, which would probably include Moab and Ammon, <coughs> Ammon. And they begin to oppress Israel. And they, uh, here, well, let's read it. Chapter 6. So if you're adding this to your map, you just have to put a little arrow that kind of points down to Midian. Um, they don't show up too much, so if you don't want to add them to your map, that's totally fine. But I need to be faster. Holy smokes. The hand of Midian pre prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves dens, caves, and strongholds in the mountain. So it was whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up. Also, the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. So, everyone who surrounds them, basically. They would encamp against them, and they would destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. We remember where this is? On the west side. So, if they're with the people of the east, and they go as far as Gaza, which is on the far side, it means the entire breadth of the land. And they would leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and tents, as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels, without number. And they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And finally, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So a difficult situation for them. And it's interesting that it's not this general oppression. It's like this... Um, Whenever they had crops, Midian would just come through and steal everything, right? All of the power and all the things that they had worked and toiled so hard to produce were just stolen out from under them. And their enemies took, if you remember, God had said to Israel, I give you a land that you have not labored in. I give you cities you have not built. I give you fields you have not plowed and vines you have not grown. This I give to you for you and your children for as long as you shall serve the Lord your God. But if... <laughs> You turn from me, then I will give to your enemies the fields for which you have toiled and the land which you have worked. And so you see this, like literally, they just come through and they steal it. Hard to live without food. They finally cry out to the Lord. So often, might I also add, sin does this in the midst of our life. It takes and it robs from our strength. And we feel like we can do things and we feel like we're getting things done, even in our own strength, and that we have accomplished and made. But in the end, the enemy comes in because he has this doorway, and that which we have made in our strength or that which could have been done is stolen and used for evil instead. And what came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I've brought you up from Egypt. I brought you out of this house of bondage. 
And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. This unnamed prophet reminds Israel why they're in the position that they are in, because God is too good to let them continue comfortably to hell. He says, because of your rebellion, I am jumping in your way. You have ran from me, but I am coming after you. And now, Gideon. When I started uh, dating, I forgot my, I, when I, I have it right behind my keys. Cause it's like, it's like kind of, I'm not, I'm still getting used to it. A lot of people are like, I always wear mine. Good for you. I need to get a softer one. Mine's a little sharper on the edges. I forgot it this morning. When we were on our first, uh, like the first date we ever went on, we went to Kings Island and just hung out. It was a great time. We went on like two rides the entire day um, because the lines were so long. And so we spent like five hours just sitting in lines, just standing, talking to each other. And we had a fantastic time, which was a really good sign at the time. But I remember specifically um, this little girl when we were getting up to the roller coaster and... um, she was crying like really hard. And I totally related to that because when I was a kid, the first roller coaster that I ever went on was Son of Beast, which is like this notoriously rough and just like knocks you around. And I went on that one and I swore I would never ride on a roller coaster again. And then I was at a church or a school. This is so beside the point. I was at a school trip and I was in line for this big roller coaster and I was like, I'm not riding this. And then my friend's dad looked at me and said, I'm not letting you out of this line. And Mr. DeWitt forced me to go on the Millennium Force, which is like 93 miles an hour and all this stuff. And it was great. I love roller coasters ever since. But I could remember like sitting in line and being like, seeing this machine come by. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. This little girl was crying. She was at the front of the line and she was about to get on and she was like looking at this thing and it was like shooting away and she was terrified of it. And her mom leans down to her. She, I mean, she was barely tall enough to get on this ride. Her mom leans down to her and goes, baby, you don't have to get on this ride. And she goes, no, I'm doing it. (laughs) And she walks over crying, sits down, pulls it down, crying, belts herself in, crying, and then just holds on and starts sobbing. <laughs> and then it goes, and she just, I just saw her like go, you know? And I thought it was the most incredible thing because it was the perfect description of the word courage in that she, it wasn't that she wasn't scared, it was that she did it anyway. And I was like, that little girl was way braver than I was at her age. I had to be forced. And she was forcing herself. With Gideon, we kind of see a similar situation. The angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, verse 11. Anytime you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's almost always, I actually want to say always, I can't think of an exception. It's actually Jesus himself. Um, and you see this because he will both say, he will speak like the Lord said, and then it just like, it, it takes out the angel part pretty quick. And then he will receive worship. You'll see this. 
And he sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, and Oprah, we all felt it, which belonged to Joash while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. <clears throat> so let's, let's, you don't have to plot this one because it doesn't come out, but the city of Ophrah is in the valley of Megiddo right here. And it's just near that little mountain right there. See it right there? Kind of in the middle. So if I zoom out, it's just chilling in the middle of this valley. This valley is really important. It happens all the time. You actually, oh, you know what? I want to. <clears throat> Here is, ha, this is uh, Mount, this is the Sea of Galilee over there. Where is the view from Mount Carmel? Let me see if I can find it. I was looking at this earlier. Ah, uh, do, 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 do. Do, do. Now it's weird. There's the Sea of Galilee. I thought it was right here. Now I feel bad. I'm sorry. Totally wasted. Oh, there's Gideon Spring. Yes. Oh, we're close. There were my feet. Sorry. <laughs> Getting eaten by fishes. Okay. Oh, nope. I, oh, no. I don't want to look through all this. It's really cool. I'm going to do it. I'm sticking it out. We're finding it. Where is it? Mount Carmel, here. There it is. Okay, so. If you remember, over here, where this mountain ridge line meets the sea, is Mount Carmel. And it has a view of the entire valley of Megiddo. Here as we look east towards the Jordan River. And so, if you're standing on top of it, it looks like this, if I can zoom in. It's not letting me zoom in. Oh, well. I'm glad we did that. It was a good time, wasn't it? Thought that would totally work. Totally didn't work. Oh, well. It looks really cool. It looks like a valley, and you can see this exact spot. It's pretty cool. Anyway, so here he is. He's in Ophrah, and he is Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Why would you do that? Well, you wouldn't. Why do they pull this out specifically? Because when you thresh wheat, the idea is that there's the edible part of the wheat in the middle and there's the hard shell and it you can't eat that part. It's just kind of flaky. It's like coconut and candy. It doesn't belong, right? doesn't belong. And so what you do is you the easiest way to separate it, <laughs> I'm declaring, no, I'm just kidding. You take the wheat and you smash it and it breaks the outer shell into pieces. And the easiest way to separate it is that you just throw it all in the air and the wind blows away the thin outer shell that's broken apart, right? Obviously, to do that most effectively, it helps to be in a windy place, which is generally not inside of a pit, which is a wine press. And so he is taking this wheat and he's throwing it up just kind of barely above the rim of the pit, hoping that it blows this stuff away because he doesn't want the Midianites to see that he's just brought in a crop because they'll come and take it. He's in the middle of a valley, and it's not that hard to see far, which you would know if you could see the picture that I really clumsily failed to bring up. He's hiding. And Jesus appears to him, verse 12, and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Interesting, isn't it? It's not the kind of person you like immediately think of when you look at Gideon, but Jesus obviously sees something different. 
Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this all happened to us? A couple things. One, Gideon doesn't realize right away what, what's going on. Jesus looks like a person, right? That's how he appears. And uh, he just is talking to him. Oh, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon just starts to talk to this guy who's come up to his wine press and is randomly talking to him. And he's honest. And if the Lord's with us, why is all this stuff happening? Where are his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and he's delivered us into the hand of the Midianites, right? So <clears throat> Gideon doesn't totally understand what's going on, but he's been thinking about it, right? The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And this is the moment where Gideon starts to realize that something else is going on. Guzik said this, speaking of the might of Gideon, Gideon did have the might of the humble. He was threshing wheat, doing hard work on the wine press floor. Gideon had the might of the caring because he cared about the low place Israel was in. Gideon had the might of knowledge because he knew that God had done great things in the past. Gideon had the might of the spiritually hungry because he wanted to see God do great works again. Gideon had the might of the teachable because he listened to what the angel of the Lord said. And finally, Gideon had the might of the weak and God's strength is perfected in weakness. And I might add one more, that Gideon had the might of the willing in that he was willing, complicated, to do what God had asked. And that is kind of the entire lesson, right? Like, not the entire lesson, but one of the biggest lessons of Gideon's fathers in the entire Old Testament. Like, think of Abraham. It was, trust me, I'm going to do it. Just to, like, walk with me, right? Go where I tell you to go. And then with Jacob, he was always trying to figure out in his own way. And finally, he gets in a spot and the Lord says, you can't run anymore. You, I touch your hip. You cannot run from your brother. Just trust me. I'm going to do it. I want you to go in my name. And so with Moses, have I not sent you? Specifically what he says, right? Like that is the encouragement. It doesn't matter what you have. It matters that you say, yes, you trust me and you go. That's enough. The might of the willing. He says the same thing in his encouragement to Joshua. Joshua chapter one, verse nine, verse eight or nine. I forget the address. He says, do the things that I've told you to do. Be careful to do them. Be strong and of good courage. I have sent you and I'm going with you. I butchered that verse a little bit, but you remember. <clears throat> All throughout, you see the disciples just go to the cities to preach my word and I've got it. Go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. What's the confidence? Have I not sent you? For us as believers... This is still our call today. We trust the work of the Lord. We trust the ability of the Lord. We trust the power of the Lord. It is ours to say, God, I will believe you and I will walk with you. And as the Lord sends, we go 
the result is not in our hands. May the Lord use us and wherever he sends us, if we just say, okay. But Gideon, understandably, and with far less to draw from historically and biblically, and, and it is has some questions. I think it's totally fair. And I love the other lesson from this is just the graciousness of the Lord to walk with Gideon. So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. It's a great place to be. How often do you see this happening? The Lord said to him, how can you save Israel? Surely I will be with you. That's the key. And you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And I love this. Just read with me this section. You see like Gideon kind of taking this and like trying to meet with the Lord here. And he's trying to have faith. He has a little bit of faith and he's trying to walk in his little bit of faith, but he's also not sure. And God just meets him really graciously in the midst of it. Gideon said to the angel of the Lord Jesus, if I have found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it is really you who's talking with me. I mean, honestly, fair to ask. Somebody just rolls up and is like, hey, what if you just attacked him? Because, you know, I'm with you. And you're like, who are you? <laughs> Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and I bring out my offering and I set it before you. And Jesus said, I will wait for you until you come back, right? <clears throat> Honestly, I think it's kind of precious because Gideon doesn't totally know what he's doing here, right? Like he, it seems to me that like he knows he's supposed to bring an offering to the Lord. And so he goes in and he prepares a young goat and he makes unleavened bread from a little bit of flour and he puts the meat in a basket and he puts the broth in a pot and he just brings them out to Jesus underneath the terebinth tree and he presented them. Like Gideon just like, there's supposed to be an offering and I remember a bread offering and I remember unleavened bread and I remember that there's meat and so he grabs it all and he just like walks out and he's like, here, <laughs> I don't know. I, and the angel of the Lord says to him, Here's what I want you to do. Take the meat and this unleavened bread, lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. It's almost like a little teeny piece of what the Lord is going to ask him to do. He just shows up with the stuff, his heart, whatever God, and then the Lord kind of tells him how to arrange and what to do, right? It's a tiny little version of what's going to happen next. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight and Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's probably thinking perhaps about Moses and I'm going to die. And the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar and called it, the Lord is peace. And it is still there to this day, whenever the author of Judges wrote this book. <clears throat> I think it's sweet. The Lord says peace. And so Gideon says, all right, God is peace. And he builds an altar in honor of the Lord who had met him there. It came to pass, we'll do one more kind of short story here and we'll kind of get into the main thing um, probably next week. Now it came to pass the same night, the Lord said to him, okay, all right, you just did a little thing. You brought me and then I told you what to do. Okay, time to get your own house in order. I'm going to ask you to do something slightly more difficult, 
but something important that must be done. You must get your own house in order. Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and you shall tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock and the proper arrangement, right? There will not be in your house, Gideon, two altars. There shall be one. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice using the wood from the idol that you cut down. I love that. So Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and he did as the Lord had said. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So you see Gideon, he's doing it. You know, like you give him credit, he's, he's working it through. He's a little scared. So he does it at night, works out. He gets it done. Yes, God, I will do the thing, right? When the men of the city arose, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bowl was in the midst of being offered on the altar. So it's like they wake up and Gideon's like lighting the fire using this idol that he had chopped up. And they said, who did this? When they had inquired and they asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. The men of the city said to Joash, this is Gideon's dad, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image. But Joash, good man, stands up for his son, said to all who who stood against him, would you plead on Baal's half? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If Baal is truly a god, let Baal plead for himself since his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him, let Baal plead, or Jerubbabal, or something else probably pronounced correctly, I don't know, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Um, <clears throat> the, the other way you could understand this name that Gideon gets and is what he'll be known as after this story. There's, there's more to Gideon's story than just this story with the Midianites, but his name switches after um, and so to this Jerubbabel, and it's like, let Baal, the one with whom Baal must contend almost is kind of the sense of this. Good on this dad for standing up for him. <clears throat> and then I'm just going to kind of lay out this thing. And um, I think for, I don't want to jump into the middle of this story and then like kind of have to stop. So I'm going to go a little bit further and I'm going to pause and pick back up. All right. So we might end a few minutes early. I'm sure you'd be really bummed. Then the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew the trumpet and the people of his city, the Abiezrites, gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they came up to meet them. And so <clears throat> Gideon, he does a small thing. He brings it to the Lord. He's obedient. And God gives him this, Baal, I want you to get your own house in order, even though it might cost you. And there's a risk in the midst of doing it. And Gideon says, all right. And now Gideon's house is in order and he's a willing man. And so God says, all right, it's time. And God brings the armies of the enemy and he sticks them. I'll show you. I'm going to make a little, I'll just show you now. He grabs them and the whole camp of the Midianites go here. This is obviously an estimate because it's the south side of this Mount Moreh. And there's his little hometown 
on the left side of Gideon. And the enemy comes up and just parks right next to his house, next to his hometown. But Gideon grabs a bunch of people and he goes over to this little ridge right here. We'll we'll talk about all this in a, uh, probably next week more so. But just so you can see it, the place that Gideon gathers his whole army on this is right over here on this ridge. And so I don't know if you can like see the two sections uh, right here. See that? I kind of help you see it. So he's going to make his whole camp in a spot where you can look out and you can see the enemy splayed out in the valley before him. <clears throat> and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, and this is the whole story about the fleece. Um, I promised you that I, well, let's, let's, yeah, I'll go quick. So Gideon said to God, and you got to wonder, like, you have the enemy at your foot, at your doorstep. You have this giant army of about 130,000 people-ish that is right there in front of you. The Midianites whom you have feared. And, you know, it was it was like it's kind of scary to uh, destroy the altar of Baal in the night. and But you got through that. But like now it's real and there's these giant thing. And so Gideon is just kind of struggling a little bit with this. He said to God, if you truly will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it's dry on the ground, I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Right? This is a fleece. couple points from this. One, God is gracious and kind to Gideon, especially because he's in a difficult spot. He's being asked a difficult thing. And it is perfectly fair, I think, for us to sometimes ask for confirmation from the Lord when a thing is difficult, right? And it was so when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. So just as he had said, and the Lord honors it. At the same time, though, God had already said, go and do it. And so there's a little bit of just this, and I, uh, this give and take with Gideon where like, hey, Gideon, what's enough is that I have told you. And so, verse 39, Gideon says to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just one more. Let me test, I pray, just one more with the fleece. I like that he says, don't be angry with me. Because I, like, I think he's in that same spot of like, God, I know you said. <laughs> but I'm just having a hard time right now with this. These guys are really tall. And let me test one more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. And so God is gracious and kind with him. We can get ourselves into a lot of trouble doing this kind of stuff because really what Gideon is doing is he's dictating terms to the Lord, right? I will obey you if you do this for me. And that's always a dangerous thing to do. If the Lord has said, then go, right? And do. But also we understand the difficulty of Gideon's spot and you like as people as humans we can recognize that the scariness of what was in front of him and so i also love the fact that god is gracious and patient with gideon but even if he hadn't been given this sign he already had the word of god and that's what he should follow uh, do i keep going Think I pause? Yes. You think so? Yes. Hmm. 
I'm telling you, that's really strong. I appreciate that. I think I honestly, I think that you're right because this whole next save the good stuff, but then but like, yeah, that's a great point. I totally see that. I totally see that. But like, also, this is a really good story. And it's like, we've just been cranking through stuff. It's like, has it been that good? This is a really good story. Um, all right. I'll give you one little key, one little piece from the next part. <clears throat> one little fact that I like, and I was really excited to share with you. The camp of Gideon and the people of Gideon, this army that God brings up, isn't even close to as big as the camp of the Midianites. It's actually four to one by math. And God is going to bring it down to very close to 400 to one. A hundred times worse for Gideon. Why? Because have I not sent you? Have I not sent you, right? And honestly, like we go through this entire story and it's a, it's a really good story. <clears throat> you guys know it. And I'm excited to kind of plot it out just because it's fun to watch the little pieces and the, the, the cities pop up on the map. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I see why he's going there and what's going on. <clears throat> but the key understanding and the thing underneath all of it is just that very simple truth throughout the entire thing that Gideon is struggling with of like, hey, if God has said, then go. And today for us as believers, the things which were written before have been written for our learning and it's the same exact thing. May the Lord help us to be people who walk with courage and boldness in the midst of the world that we have been given, even in a land that walks away from the Lord. If God has given to us our peace <clears throat> as we follow God and as we obey the Lord, we need really nothing else but the confidence that God is with us, right? And if I could turn that around just a little bit, it's really that God invited Gideon to go with him, right? And so for you today, this week, whatever's going on, <clears throat> as you walk in step with the Lord and as you go with the Lord, even if you're terrified and you're crying as you get on the roller coaster, know that the Lord is with you and that that is the kind of courage that counts. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you have spoken to us and the encouragement of it. Would you bless us as next week we jump into this story and then also the failures of Gideon afterwards and all of it is so rich and there's so much to pull out of it. But Lord, would you bless us this week? Would you encourage us um, and would you give us peace in your call and in your closeness to us. Thank you that you love us and that you're in us. In Jesus' name. Everybody said?